If you could, uh, turn with me to the book of Judges. Judges is the, the seventh book of the Bible, and it's the, the new book that we're beginning this morning. We're kind of going through a, a section of the Bible, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, in between the first five books of the Bible and the, the, the books that start dealing with the Israelites' kings. Uh, but this is kind of the, this, uh, this book of Judges we're beginning this morning. As you turn there, I would encourage you to come back uh, this evening for our Sunday evening service. As we mentioned earlier, uh, Kent will be sharing with us and we'll be, it'll be time uh, as, as a family to talk about some things. And uh, we're, we're, we're growing as a family. It's kind of our theme for uh, this year. And this evening, uh, many of you maybe have thought, you know, this, this year I want to grow in my ability to uh, to study God's Word, I want my devotional times with, with God to be, to be richer, to be, to be fuller. And so Kent's going to be uh, talking about some things this evening I think will be encouraging to you in that journey. But we're here in the book of Judges <clears throat> this morning. And uh, my, my dad loved the book of Judges. Uh, it was a book that he probably studied and taught from more than any other book in Scripture. It's been kind of a, a joy of mine this last uh, last few weeks to be able to read through some of his old notes and, and see some of the, the thoughts that he had about the book of Judges from his different Sunday school classes and Bible studies that he led through the book of Judges. I also noticed he did this thing. I'd forgotten he did this. Uh, on every page of his notes, he would jot down at the bottom what time he wanted to be done by. So, uh, Like on that page, there'd be like six pages of notes. He'd start at 9 o'clock and he'd write 9.10 at the bottom of the first page. Like he needed to be done by that time. You know I've never done that, uh, obviously, if you've been at Bethany any length of time. And I, I thought, well, that'd be interesting. And so I started jotting down times that I could be done by. And so um, 2.30 is the, <laughs> the time on the last page. So I don't, I don't know. Uh, seriously, this is, there's a lot to cover here. I'm going to spend a long time in the introduction this morning, probably. And, uh, you know, we've, we've got some time to get through this. So whatever we don't get through this morning... In a couple of weeks, we'll come back to it. Next week is Sanctity of Life Sundays, when we're focusing on some some uh, foster care, safe families, adoptions, and things like that. But so this week, and then two weeks, we're going to be looking at the introduction here, and so um, we're okay uh, being a little bit a uh, little bit slow here uh, this morning. We'll see what we get done. But as we delve into the Book of Judges, we see the theme here: uh, the need for a king. And as we delve into the, the book of Judges, a, a couple thoughts. There's, there's kind of three main sections to the book of Judges. There's the introduction that we're looking at this week and in a couple weeks. And in the introduction, we see how things get so bad. And then in the middle section, there's this, this series of cycles. And there's kind of three words you can remember as you think about the middle section of the book of Judges and what's taking place. There's times of sin. And then after sin, God puts his people into positions of servitude, and then he brings about salvation. It's a cycle. They sin, they're, they're put into servitude, and then he brings about salvation. There's sometimes another thing that happens. There's supplications. There's sin, servitude, and then people uh, ask God to, to deliver them, and then he, then he does. But that doesn't always happen. But there's always sin, servitude, salvation. That's, that's the middle of the book of Judges, and it happens time and time again. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. And it's, it's this cycle, and it's a downward spiral of a cycle. And then you come to the conclusion of the book of Judges, and things are, are terrible. Terrible, terrible things take place at the end of the book of Judges. 
And what becomes very clear, what becomes very clear as you go through the book of Judges, is that Israel needs a king. God had promised a deliverer from the very beginning. As you go through the book of, of Judges, you see that God makes a covenant with Abraham, and there's going to be a coming king and kingdom. As you go through the rest of the, the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy, the book of Numbers, there's this promised king. As you go through Joshua, you see that Joshua is a picture of this king, but he's not the king himself. And as you come to Judges, you see Israel needs a king. This is a very Christ-centered book in that it points us to King Jesus because just as the Israelites needed a king, and it becomes very clear in the book of Judges they needed, needed a king who could deal with their hearts, so you and I need a king. We need someone who can rule over us perfectly and can provide us with not just moral behavior but heart transformation. No president, no governor, no pastor, no congressman, no senator, no parent is going to provide the heart change we need. We need a king. God's people need a king. This is a sad book in so many ways. My dad uh, would always say this is a, a story of how the nation of Israel went from its greatest generation to its worst generation in about one generation. It's, it's a terribly sad story story, and we see that they needed a king, we need a king. Now, how did things get so bad? How did things get so bad? How did you go from Joshua to all the things that took place in Judges? How, how, does, how does that happen? Well, chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Judges tell us. Chapters 1 and 2, and the, the first part of chapter 3, verse 6, it forms the introduction to this book of Judges, and it tells us, look, here's how things went from this greatest generation to this, this, this worst generation and, and all that followed. So let's read a little bit from Judges this morning. We're not going to read all of chapter 1 and 2, but we're going to begin looking at chapter 1, a little bit of chapter 2. And Joshua has, has died. The land, is, the land that the Israelites were told to conquer is under their control, but it's not yet fully subdued. Remember, as we came to the end of Judges, sorry, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that for months now. Um, as we came to the end of the book of Joshua, not everything was, was finished. There were still some things to do to subdue the land. And so as we begin the book of Judges, we, we see how well that went or how poorly that process of subduing the land goes. He starts with the tribe of Judah, and then he tells us about some other tribes as well. And so if you're able to, please stand with me as we read from Judges chapter 1, a little bit of chapter 2. I'm going to skip around a little bit, but here's, here's how we begin in verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And, and Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. 
Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They fought against Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and fought against him, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Ahaman and Talmai. Go down into verse 22 of chapter 1. It talks about the other tribes and what they did. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scattered out Bethel. Now, the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Uh, You may be seated. I'm going to continue reading. Verse 27, again, we're talking about how things go, and not everything is going as God had instructed them to do things. Verse 27, again, talking to the different tribes, now he goes to Manasseh. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol, so the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alib or Axib or of Helba, or of Aphek, or of Rohab, so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. He talks about Naphtali, and he talks about the Amorites, and then chapter 2, verse 1. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you've done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of the, that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And Father, we do, as we look at the introduction of the book of Judges, we are mindful that, that we are a, a sinful people. Our lack of, of faith in you is demonstrated on, on a daily basis. And so we, we cry out to you, and, and we cling to you, and trust in you, 
not to save us on the basis of our works, but on the basis of your, your word, your, your, your covenant that you make, this new covenant based upon the work of your son, Jesus, that we've celebrated this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen. So the title of the message this morning is, is How a Church Becomes Apostate. And uh, this is not something I suggest, I'm suggesting we do. Apostasy is a bad thing. It's not something we, we want to pursue. And in fact, some of you may say, well, what does that word apostate even mean? What, what, what is apostasy? And apostasy means to fall away. It means to, to, to be in rebellion. So, so for a Christian, what apostasy means is a, a person who's apostate has at one time affirmed the gospel. They've They've agreed, at least in, in their, with their words, with their mouth, they've, they've agreed with the, the truths of Scripture, and then they, they fall away from that. They, they, they reject that. And obviously, apostasy is, is something that's, that's very sad for us to think about as, as we talk about it. It's a hard issue. Uh, there are people that we love who have become apostate. We were in relationship with them. We worshiped together. They affirmed the gospel. They affirmed that they loved Jesus. And, and then something happened, and, and now they would no longer make any claims of, of being in relationship with God. They, they would no longer say anything about being in, in a relationship with God, and they, they wouldn't live in, as, as a Christian is supposed to live. So sometimes a person apostatizes by, by saying, I'm no longer a Christian. Sometimes just by their lifestyle, they reveal, look, I, I no longer want to live in obedience to God. That's that's apostasy, and it's a hard thing. Many of us, have, all, all of us who've been Christians for any length of time, uh, of, 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 of any substance, have, have known people, have loved people who are no longer walking with the Lord. That's, that's apostasy. Now, apostasy is, is different than just disagreeing with Christianity. So, for example, uh, uh, you might take a, a famous atheist, Richard Dawkins, right? And, and as far as I know, Richard Dawkins never made any statement of, of of believing in Jesus, and so what, he doesn't agree with Christianity, but he never agreed with Christianity, and of course we'd want him to be a Christian, but he's not apostate. He's, he's an atheist that was never a Christian. That's not apostasy. Joshua Harris, a person that many of us have, have benefited from his ministry, uh, Joshua Harris, by his own testimony, he's, he's apostate. At one time he affirmed the gospel, he was a pastor, he was an author, and then and he stopped affirming the gospel. In fact, he, um, he put on social media that he was uh, leaving his wife. And, and then, he, um, then he said, put another post. And uh, very, I, I appreciated his honesty. He, he wrote this. He said, look, what I, didn't leave, what I left out of my previous announcement is I've undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this, that is the, the popular phrase in our culture, is deconstruction. He says, but the biblical phrase is falling away. I, just, I appreciate him using that biblical phrase. He says, the, the, the biblical phrase, what's happening to me, Harris is saying, is, is falling away. By all measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Now, both Richard Dawkins and, and Joshua Harris are, are, are people who are made in God's image. And of course, we would desire for both of those people to be in a relationship with God, but but Joshua Harris, there's, there's a certain kind of sadness we have in that situation because here's a person who, who, who worshiped with us, who called himself our, our brother, and we loved him, and then 
and then he's no longer with us. And we can think of less famous people. We can think of people that in our own families, in our own uh, church who we've loved, we've cared for, we've prayed together, we've taken the Lord's Supper together. And now we're no longer in a relationship, right? In terms of being brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, there's a sorrow to that. How does that happen? How, how can a person taste the goodness of God and be in fellowship and, and fall away? And it's not just individuals that become apostate, right? There, there, there are churches we see that can become apostate. Just, um, just this past week, um, you may have seen the story about what's going on within the Methodist denomination. And the Methodist denomination this, this week kind of announced that they're going to encourage their, their, the churches when they come together for the convention, they're going to encourage their churches to separate. They said, okay, look, if, uh, if, if you are a church, a congregation that believes that homosexuality is inconsistent with biblical teaching. I think that's the phrase they used. If, if that's your church, then you have the freedom to, to leave our denomination. In other words, look, we're, we're committed. <laughs> this is how I interpret what's happening. Look, as a denomination, we're committed to, to living in what I would call apostasy, not, not living in obedience to how God says Christians are to live. And so that's how, how we're going to be, but we're giving you the freedom to, 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 to separate. And it's, 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 it's a sad thing in terms of, of seeing a church, a denomination, uh, make that decision. And of course, there are many Methodists that, that we are in relationships with, that we, we love, brothers and sisters in Christ, and we need to be in prayer that churches would respond biblically to apostasy, right? There's separation that has to take place. L- let me continue, and let me, let me, let me describe what we see in Scripture about apostasy. In other words, sometimes sometimes people say, well, okay, there, there's apostasy. People are falling away from faith. Does this prove that Christianity isn't true? Well, well, hardly, because this is exactly what God said would happen. So, for example, in Galatians, we see Paul writing to the Galatians. He says, look, I, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a, a different gospel. This is something that has happened since the very beginning of the Christian faith in, in terms of the, the, the beginning of the church Galatians 2, uh, Paul goes on and says, look, there, there are false brothers who were secretly brought in who slipped in to, to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery. Their, their whole purpose of coming to church was to, to turn people away from the faith. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus in verse 5 says, look, in the, in the future many people will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ and they will lead many astray. Then in verse 10, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So this is something that Jesus said would happen. Uh, there's many more passages that I could go through. First Timothy Chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 3 describes this. Jeremiah describes falling away from the true faith. Jeremiah 2, verse 17, talks about the danger of what happens as you fall away. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, when he led you in the way? So God led you, and now you're, you're, you're following a different path. Then he says in verse 19, your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. 
In other words, as you, as you leave this path that God has for you, there are going to be consequences, both, both immediately in terms of your joy and then also eternally in terms of your condemnation. There, there's judgment that, waits, that awaits the apostate. Now, you say, well, well Daniel, a um, couple questions here. Is this something we really need to worry about? Because isn't it true that, that once you're in Christ, you can't fall out of Christ? Isn't it true that, that a person who's, who's in Christ is eternally secure? And the answer to that is, is yes, of course. And yet at the same time, it's possible for us to deceive ourselves that we're in Christ. And it's also possible for us as a church, as an organization, as a, as, a, as a community of faith, it's possible for our, our church to no longer be faithful in its gospel proclamation. And as, as a church, it's possible for us to fall away. You say, well, well Dana, what do I do with these passages that warn against apostasy? If, if I'm in Christ, how do they help me? If, or if, if, if someone that I love is not walking with the Lord, how, how does it how does it help them? I mean, is this just, are these passages just here to discourage me? Like I have this person that I love, and, so I'm, and now I hear that there, there's possible to, to, not, uh, not, to, not, to, not to not to be brought back into repentance. So is this just a passage that discourages me? No. No, no. God in his love for us has, has given us these passages to warn us. And I believe that the purpose of these passages we've talked about in the passage like what we find here in Judges, is, is to encourage us to continue in the faith and to cause us to, to cling to Christ in the midst of this and, and cry out to him for the salvation of the people that we love. I, I love what Je- Jeff prayed. I don't know if you caught this earlier, but he was talking about people who have, um, you know, things we need to teach our children. He said, I, I can't remember exactly how he phrased it, but something like just that we would remind them that they're always one step away from, from returning to Christ. In other words, it's not something like if you've, if you've fallen the, the wrong path, you have to kind of retrace your steps and get back and then find the right step and then right path and then take up steps and then eventually you'll be found uh, faithful to God. No, these, these passages tell us, look, it's possible to, to fall away, to be in rebellion, and yet God is always near. These passages should be an encouragement to us to warn us to walk with the Lord, to cling to him. In fact, here's the main idea that I want us to think about as we look at this, this passage a little bit this week and then in a couple weeks. Here's the main I think, thing I want us to think about. Let's come to this. Let's flee the path that leads to falling away and in, from, from the faith. And instead, let's cling to Christ. As we look at what happens here in the book of Judges, in these first two chapters, we see two things that they do that are kind of a, like two steps that they take that, that lead to... That them falling away. And, and, and as a church, as we look at what leads to, to falling away from the faith, let's, let's, let's flee that path. Instead, let's cling to Christ. Two things happen here in the book of Judges. There, there's two steps that we, ha- that we see them take, two, two steps towards apostasy that we see them make in these first two chapters, two steps to falling away. We're going to see that they're going to, to, to stop worshiping God rightly. They're going to be engaged in something we call syncretism. They're going to call idolatry true worship. And then secondly, they're going to stop discipling their children. So they, 
they're here, it's a good generation, and then they're going to, to immerse themselves with the Canaanites, and they're going to start calling idolatry true worship, and then the second step toward apostasy that they're going to take is to fail to disciple the next generation. So let's look at the first thing this morning, and we're going to apply it to the church, how we as a church can apostatize, not something we want to do, but these are two steps that a church takes, and there's others that you could, other steps you could mention as well, but here in the text, in Judges, two steps we see towards apostasy, and these are things that a church can do as well to apostatize, and these are things we want to flee. Here's the first thing that we're going to see this morning as we begin to look at chapter one. The first thing a church does on its road to apostasy, or one of the first things, is to call idolatry Christianity. To call idolatry Christianity. You say, what does that mean? Another word to describe this is is a word syncretism. What it means is is you have idolatry, right? You have the, the things that the culture worships. Israel goes into the land and and there are things that the Canaanites are worshiping, gods that they're worshiping. We go into the the North American culture, we go into Central Illinois culture, and they're they're the gods of this culture. And what syncretism is, is saying, okay, I'm going to take the idols of my culture, and I'm going to take Christianity, and I'm going to try to kind of mesh those things together, right? I'm going to take idolatry, I'm going to take Christianity, and I'm going to mesh those things together. I'm going to create this new thing. I'm going to call that new thing Christianity, when in reality, what is it? It's idolatry. My son, uh, many years ago, I just, I just saw an old picture of this. He took, uh, he took like a bunch of foods that he loved, like a little cookie, a little animal cracker, and peanut butter, and I don't know, like Skittles or something, and he just took them all together and mesh them into this this one uh, superfood, right? And uh, he showed it to Whitney. He's like, "Hey, look at this. This is this is this is pretty awesome, huh?" And and Whitney's like, "Yeah, yeah." And uh, he goes, "Do you, you want to put it on Pinterest? You know, like <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it's obviously so beautiful that you would want to put this on Pinterest." And she goes, "You know what? I think that's okay." You know, he took a bite of it. And he's like. Hmm, no, that's, that's, that's not exactly what I was thinking it would be, right? Now, what's cute in a, in a little kid is deadly when it comes to Christianity. To take Christianity and the, the values of our culture and try to mesh them together and create this new super Christianity, it doesn't work. It's the first step on the road to apostasy. And you say, well, well how, does someone, how does someone call idolatry Christianity? How do, how do I know if that's happening in, in, in my life? How do I know that I'm not engaging in true worship, but worshiping the gods of my culture and calling it Christianity? Well, we certainly don't mean to do that. We don't wake up one morning and say, you know what? I, I think what would be better for my life is to, to practice idolatry and call it Christianity. We don't do that. The Israelites do, don't do that. What are the steps, kind of these, these sub-steps of, of becoming a person who's calling idolatry Christianity? Well, here's, here's a couple things. Here's, here's how this takes place. Here's how you can can begin to unwittingly call idolatry, idolatry Christianity. Number one, you can adopt a worldly methodology to your life. You adopt a worldly methodology. Look at the text, Judges 1, with me if you would. And look what happens as we begin. Joshua has died. The people need to, be, to continue the, the process of conquering 
Canaan, the promised land. And they ask the Lord, okay, who needs to start? And God says, okay, Judah and needs to begin. And so Judah grabs the tribe of Simeon and says, okay, together we're going to do this. And they, they begin to fight. And then something interesting happens in verse 6. They, they've fought Adonai Bezek. I think that's like a title. Adonai is Lord Bezek, so it's like the Lord of Bezek. They fight this, this, this chieftain. And he flees, verse 6, they, they find him, and, and what do they do when they find him? They, they cut off his, his toes and his thumbs. Now, it makes sense why you would do that to someone, right? I mean, it prevents, it's, it's humiliating, you're humiliating this, this defeated enemy, and you're preventing him from being able to, to fight, right? So it, it makes sense in terms of, of why you might do that, but where in the world did they get the idea? You know what we should do? Thumbs and toes. Cut them off. That's, that's really the way to go about it. Where did they get that idea? Well, the next verse tells us, right? The Canaanites did it. Adonai Bezek uh, does it, and he goes, you know what? Serves me right. I did this to 70 other kings. I cut off their thumbs. So I took a lot of kings, and I, I cut off their thumbs and their big toes. They used to pick up scraps on my table. What does this tell us? It tells us that the Israelites are beginning to adopt the methodology of the Canaanites. Now, if this was the only verse that kind of alluded to this, you might say, well, maybe, maybe not. But all throughout chapter 1 and chapter 2, what are we seeing? The Israelites are not being the Israelites. The Israelites are becoming the Canaanites. They've begun to adopt the methodology of, of, of warfare of the people that they're supposed to be conquering. What did God said to do? God had said to go in and, and destroy them. Adonai Bezek should have immediately been killed, and instead, the Israelites are, are parading him around as some sort of trophy. Goes back to Jerusalem, and he dies there. Now, how does that affect the church? There's nothing wrong inherently with, with a church at times being pragmatic, right? There, there's nothing wrong about using some worldly uh, uh, wisdom principles, or some, some principles of wisdom. Like there, there's nothing wrong with, with that per se in and of itself. But the problem is when we forget to allow God's word and his goals and his methods to shape our practices first and foremost, to be the, the foundation of how we think about life and how we live. So we come to these different areas of life where God has given us a revelation. Do we start with scripture or do we begin with worldly methodology that we try to, to baptize and call Christianity in terms of how we approach our, our work, in terms of how we approach studying, thinking about parenting, thinking about school, thinking about church life? Or do we begin with the worldly methodology or we begin with God's word and say, okay, God, what are you passionate passionate about here? What are you telling me in terms of how I need to think about my life and about my purpose and about what I do? So for example, parenting, right? Parenting. Many of you are parents of children who are under the age of five, right? Man, that is a tough gig, right? <laughs> and you are bombarded with, with decisions about how am I going to to, to parent, like, like, what am I going to do? I've, I need to figure out how to, to convince this child to eat. I need how to convince this child not to, not to touch outlets. I need to convince this child not to do things that are going to harm himself or herself. I need, and then, some of you, some of you crazy people, you have two children, right? And what happens 
when you take one child and add a second child to that? They begin to fight with each other, right? And they, they just they start fighting. If you have four, huh. Um, but, and five. So you start, you start to say, okay, I've I got to figure out something to do here. I, I need, I need, I need some, some methodology. And you are getting bombarded with suggestions. You know what you need? Schedule. You know what you need? Rewards. Chore chart. You need this, you need that, you need this. And some of those things are fine, right? But what, as a Christian, what do I need to do? If I'm not going to be a syncretist, if I'm not going to be someone who just kind of calls idolatry to Christianity, I, I'm going to begin, okay, what does God's word say about parenting? What does God's word say about how I'm to approach this task? What does it say about me as a parent? What does it say my role is? What does it say about this kid? You know what it says about the kid? The kid's a sinner who you are to love and proclaim the gospel to. Now, as I approach my parenting with, with that understanding, does that affect my methodology? You bet it does, right? I'm not going to say, you know what, a schedule is salvation for my child. If I, if I have this schedule and I, I put my child in this schedule, they're suddenly going to become this, this re- redeemed human being. No, I, I approach methods saying, you know what, my whole goal is to proclaim the gospel. I'm not going to use guilt. I'm not going to use shame. I'm not going to use uh, punishment for the purpose of, of showing them how angry I am at them. I'm going to approach parenting much, much differently as a believer, right? I'm not going to believe that if I, if I just put them in the right school or if I just homeschool them enough or I put them in the right private school, then suddenly they're going to be the child that I... <laughs> the parents have often asked me, oh, what would you do with your your child in, in terms of, of helping them, you know, what's the best schooling option for, for your child? I say, look, I have no idea, you know. I, 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 the name of my parenting book that I'm writing is called Your, your Child is Terrible and So Are You, right? <laughs> but thank God for the gospel, right? But thank God for the gospel. That's what our kids need. Now, there are great methods to use. But look, if we begin with the world's methods, we are, we're, we're beginning that, that step towards apostasy. You don't ad- adopt a worldly method. Same is true in the church, right? Same is true in the church. You know, there are so many methods. You know, use this method of leadership. Use that method of leadership. Have this committee. Have this leadership team. Hey, you come to, to the church, and those can be some helpful strategies, but the church says, look, here's the goal for, the, for church leadership is to, to lay down their life for the flock. Uh, Peter says, um, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, not domineering those in your charge, being examples of the flock. You know, the first step in calling idolatry Christianity is to begin to adopt a worldly methodology. The second step, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say, you know, I'm just gonna say the, the next three, the next four, and then we're gonna go through them uh, in two weeks. Number two, you, you fear what the world fears. I encourage you to read through Judges and, and see how this plays out. You fear what the world fears. You're going to see that the Israelites fear what the Canaanites fear, and, and it affects why they fall away from the faith. You fear what the world fears if you want to begin to uh, call idolatry Christianity. Number three, you tolerate compromise and you tolerate disobedience. That's something we're going to see play out as we go through the book of Judges. Look, look particularly at verses 22 through 26 and, and see how, that, see how the, the, what happens there is different than what happened with, with Rahab in the book of Joshua. Uh, number four, number four, you live immersed in the world. 
In, in verses 27 through 36, you're going to see this, this failure to conquer. And you're going to see the inevitable result. The ine- I'm sorry, I'm really hurrying. Um, I, hear the, <laughs> I hear the alarm going off. I am, I'm close. Uh, <laughs> yesterday, this is going to delay a little more. Yesterday, Whitney and I were on the, on the couch talking. And uh, so I said, oh, well, you're, you're done? You know, everything? Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, it's good talking to you, Whitney. And as, as I said that, the alarm went off. And she said, were you timing how long? I said, well, you said we were done. I, it worked out well, but I wasn't. You live immersed in the world. You live immersed in the world. And then, and then finally, and so again, in 27 through 36, you're going to see how the Canaanites failed, uh, how the Israelites failed to remove the Canaanites. They became part of the world. Number five, you begin to, you, then you, you worship other gods. You worship other gods. That's the process you see. Now, now have we become like our culture? Have we become like our culture? The first step to apostasy is, is to, begin, to begin that road is to, to become like the culture. Instead of becoming like the people of God, to become like the culture. The, the, the book is going to go on to say, in the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Is, is there a better summary of the state of the church today, right? Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. Brothers and sisters, let's flee that path that leads to falling away from the faith and instead cling to Christ. We need a king. The people of Israel need a king. That's going to come through so clearly as we go through the book of Judges. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your grace. We pray that you would, in your kindness to us, allow us to to rightly approach you, to live our lives in obedience to you, and to, to, to fear you and not to fear the things the world fears. We pray by your sustaining grace, uh, you would give us a joy in you. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.